All right, it's Wednesday in Backlash Podcast World. I don't know, it might be Thursday or Friday or Saturday or Sunday in your world, but we thank everybody for coming out and listening to another episode of Backlash Podcast. If, you, uh, if you're interested in podcasting, one thing I haven't talked about a lot on this podcast is I have my very own Team Rhino Outdoors Musky Fishing Podcast that you can also check out anywhere that you find this podcast. We only talk about one bait with one manufacturer every other Monday. We just had an episode out. We were talking about the SRJ Slow Rise Jerk Bait with Kevin Abendroth and from Pandemonium Tackle. And we've had my co-host on this podcast. We've had Carrie Hoppy on just talking about, I think it was just about the cowgirl. And then we had Brad on a couple weeks, three, four, or five weeks ago. And Brad was talking about the detonator. And so if you want to check those out, go back and check out a couple of our old episodes. But anyways, my co-host today is... Brad Hoppy with Muskie Mayhem Tackle. And Brad, why don't you talk about being the original big bladed muskie bait? <laughs> well, I appreciate that, Joe. Brad Hoppy from Muskie Mayhem Tackle. And uh, we are the originators of the big bladed flashaboo bucktail. So, you know, it's kind of it's changed a lot. We're coming on 16 years right now, Jeff. And um, you can reach out to us through either our website or Facebook, Instagram, a bunch of different avenues. And here shortly, I am going to release the trailer on our YouTube channel. So if you want to look up Muskie Mayhem Tackle, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel. And we're going to start putting some footage out here shortly. And I'm not exactly sure if I said anything about who I am, but I'm Jeff with Team Rhino Outdoors. And you can check out our website, teamrhinooutdoors.com. As of this recording, we've recently got in a bunch of new products from Chaos Tackle. Smitty Baits, including the new Smitty Wizard. Hopefully it's online by the time you hear this. Tough Shad's got a few new colors. Magnum Diesels, the new Chubby from Lungeon Lures. And of course, we have the Musky Mayhem Triggers and Detonators, which have been probably some of our best-selling baits that we had this year. I don't know, Brad, do you think that the fact that we talk about the detonator and the trigger every single episode has anything to do with those sales? Well, you know, it's it's a cool platform here, and obviously uh, we do use it as a marketing tool, but honestly, I mean, it's it's bigger than that. I mean, this podcast is uh, is truly about just sharing a bunch of different musky experiences as well as uh, some knowledge base, and, you know, that's what we're trying to offer, but uh, yeah, I, I don't know, Jeff. I mean, that's a great question. It's interesting. You never know exactly where that all comes from, but all I can say is that both those baits are incredibly, uh, they're incredibly incredible. How's that sound? You know, we caught a lot of fish on them this past season. We had very limited number of people throwing them and, uh, it's been a, it's been a huge release and success. Well, I know you've talked about the trigger before and I got to see the trigger firsthand in action, got to use it, got to play with it, got to watch fish be caught on it in late August, early September and for anybody that's looking for bucktail for, you know, new bucktail for 2021, that one literally can be thrown by every single angler all day, every day, no problems whatsoever. The detonator, I have no personal experience by it for it, but from what Brad tells me, he says that it's, it can be that same, that same bucktail for, for anglers. So I'm anxious to see firsthand the detonator. Unfortunately, 
Brad and I aren't throwing musky baits right now. Our two guests today, we have two guests, something we don't do real often, We especially at the same time. We have Chris Reby and Scott Donovan, and both of them fish in southern reservoirs. Uh, Chris does a little bit in Tennessee, but then he primarily goes over to Kincaid in southern Illinois, and that's where Scott resides too, down in southern Illinois. They've both teamed up together in the PMTT, and they've had quite a bit of success, so we'll dive a little bit into that. We're going to talk. We're kind of all over. We're going to be all over the place in this podcast. We're going to talk a little bit about Tennessee. We're going to talk a little bit about Illinois. We're going to talk a little bit about their PMTT success, and we're going to have a little bit of general just BSing about fishing. Yeah, I think the interesting thing here, Jeff, is that uh, we've never done this before, where we've had two live guests at the same time. So, you know, it, it could get interesting. We'll see what happens. Yes, that's for sure. Like I said, we've never we've never done this before with the uh, having the two guests on the phone. We've had we occasionally we have them, and well, not even real often. Occasionally, maybe once or twice, we've had them over at your house where you have a couple people hanging out at the hobby compound during the fishing season, and we kind of wrangle up whoever's there and we get a podcast out of that. But I know we've definitely never had two anglers on the phone at the same time talking muskies. Absolutely. So, Brad, I don't know if you got anything else to talk about. I don't really. I know I've been stuck in the shop, and it's good. I'm, I mean, you know, we say it all the time. We definitely appreciate all of our customers. You know, Brad kind of touched on a little bit. We This podcast is is essentially it's a labor of love for the most part. The only time we get anything out of it is when you come to either muskymayhemtackle.com and make a purchase or you come to teamrhinooutdoors.com and make a purchase. And we do get a lot of purchases, and we also get a lot of feedback on the podcast and people talking about it. And if you have any feedback or you got any people that you want to get on, because the two guests that we have tonight were literally based off of, you know, feedback that we got through an email. And we're not done. I'm hoping to track down a few more guys in Illinois because we understand that there's Illinois muskie anglers, and we want to try to hit all sectors of the muskie world. So... If you want to, if you got feedback, you want a guest, you want to, you know, yell at Brad or whatever, it's uh, backlashpodcast at gmail.com. If you don't hear from us, if you don't get an instant reply on that email address, don't worry. Eventually I'll get around to it. Uh, it's just, it goes in the order of the totem pole. That's the least important part of my totem pole. I'll eventually swing back around to it because we do value your feedback and we do value the interaction that you give us on that email. But it's not always top priority. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it's not the primary focus of our normal day-to-day grind. So yeah, you're right, Jeff. But honestly, I mean, all that input is huge. And uh, we definitely try to take advantage of it as well. Yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, like I said, we listen to you and we hear you. Because we've I've said it before that this isn't our podcast. It's your podcast. And we want to have on guests that you guys want to listen to. And uh, if you're, if there's somebody we haven't touched on and you want to hear from them, like I said, drop us an email backlash podcast at gmail.com. And, um, if you haven't done so already, give us a rating or a review on iTunes helps circulate the show out to a few other people. I tell you, it helps us get more sponsors, but we don't have any sponsors or anything. So it doesn't help with that. It just, I don't know. Maybe it makes Brad and I feel better. That might help too. Right, Brad? <laughs> yeah well i'll tell you you know it, it makes it worthwhile when you hear people say man i really enjoy the podcast so uh, it, the more they share the better right absolutely 
So, Brad, let's uh, let's get Chris and Scott on the phone and talk about some Southern Reservoir muskies. Let's get after it. All right, two guests this week. We haven't done this before on a podcast. We've had four guests, but we've never had two on the same phone call before. So this is going to be something new. Our guests are Chris Reby, and we also have Scott Donovan. And we're going to start talking to Chris. So, Chris, why don't you talk a little bit about yourself, and then let's also, and then we'll jump over to, to Scott to let him talk about himself a little bit. And then I understand that you guys are lucky enough to be out musky fishing right now, and so we definitely want to talk about that too because – I don't think we've talked to a guest in the last six weeks that's done anything close to musky fishing. So let's, uh, Chris, thanks for coming on tonight. Why don't you give a little, a little brief rundown of kind of, you know, what's, uh, what, what your little part in this musky world is. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I'm, uh, down in Tennessee right now. I spend the winter here from November till April. I've been lucky enough to be on the water. I actually just did 10 straight days on the water. A little worn out after that, but, uh, We've had a little below below normal temperatures, been a little cold. Water's a little bit colder than normal, low water, less flow. But fishing's still good. Got 12 fish in the last 10 days on the water, so we're averaging like one a day. But, uh, yeah, I'm lucky that I get to take the winter and trying to chase the state record. I'm hoping for a 45-pounder here one of these days. But a lot of big fish here. Lots of fun, and then uh, I'll be heading up to Kincaid in March with Scott and uh, run some trips on Kincaid over there. And then in the summer, I, I basically just focus on the tournament fishing. Yeah, it's my understanding that you're kind of like the opposite of the rest of us. You get to go and do a little bit of musky fishing during the winter, and then the summer months, you're doing some construction projects around Chicago. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, yeah I, I run a contracting business in Chicago, and I'm, I'm kind of reverse everybody else. I, I do, I am fortunate. I get five straight months to fish in the winter time. And, uh, it's great because this, this, these fish are really fat in the winter and it's a lot of fun. It keeps it going and, uh, keeps me in shape for the PMTT when the summer comes. But the summer months, I, I get to do a little bit of fishing, but I'm mostly busy with work. And Scott, thanks for taking some time out of your schedule to talk to us as well. Why don't you talk a little bit about what you got going on there? Cause I know, you know, like much like Chris, you're out there fishing right now and you do a lot of uh, guiding in Southern Illinois. So why don't we talk a little bit about, you know, what you got going on? Sure. I appreciate you guys having us and, uh, yeah, fishing's been good. So we run Shawnee expeditions down here on Kincaid Lake, you know, 2,700 acres, small little, uh, hidden reservoir that puts out some nice fish. We've been, uh, not locked up. Current temps are about 38, 39 degrees. Run a really good rattle bat, uh, rattle bait tripe trap bite right now. You know, some lunge and lure, 22 shorts. But um, fishing's been good. We've got clients coming down, um, doing a little bit of crappie and bass, <laughs> which is a little bit different. But uh, muskies seem to be up shallow, you know, six to eight feet. They're already in their pre-spawn patterns. South-facing shores. Yeah, I can't say enough. It's been Truly pleasure um, being out there in the wintertime. The, the angling pressure has diminished um, tenfold, especially with the pandemic and with COVID going on. The lake pressure this fall was intense. So we're, uh, you know, we're, we're pretty pretty lucky to be out there chasing some muskies. We're getting a lot of calls for the spring. A lot of guys think that that bite starts late February, early March, but here we are. End of December and all through January, you know, fishing that same pre-spawn pattern and it's been producing. So for a lot of people out there, they're probably not as familiar about Tennessee. Um, why don't you give us a little idea of uh, what that Tennessee fishing looks like at this time of the season? So Tennessee in the wintertime, most of my experience 
the majority of my experience is here just in the winter. I have fished here a little bit in the summer, but these reservoirs are kind of special because we have water flowing into Melton Hill from a depth of 170 feet. So you get a very consistent flow of temperature coming out of the north because it comes from the bottom. So the reservoir typically stays 50 degrees until January, and then it'll get down into the upper 40s. It, it has been colder this year than it has been for the last five years. So things are a little bit different right now. We are not getting the winter rain that we normally get, so we do have low water, um, less flow. That changes things a bit. But here in Tennessee, there's, uh, I don't know, all within an hour drive from Knoxville, there's probably eight rivers and three or four reservoirs that are stocked with musk that were stocked with muskies at one time or another. And um, there's a lot of opportunity for different types of fishing in different places. It's, it's really fun. I'm just kind of curious, you know, how does that compare to like, say, Cave Run? I know you guys used to fish PMTT all the time together. And I'm kind of curious, you know, I'm sure you've spent your time down in Kentucky as well. Is Tennessee similar or are we talking something totally different? So Tennessee is different from the aspect that all of, all of the reservoirs are basically fish like a river. So Melton Hill, if you look at it, it looks like a river, but it's a reservoir and there's always flow. So we've always got inflow water. So it stays a bit warmer in the winter. I've, rarely seen the water drop below 45 degrees and i know like the cave will get a lot colder than that at, at some time so with the flow and in the winter time i'm a strong believer in that these muskies start their spring spawning migration as early as november if we have years with a lot of flow and a lot of rain it moves more fish up the system and you can find them in the upper ends of the systems where they were stocked earlier and then times like this year where we've had low water and low flow they're still a bit spread out you got to spend some more time you know mapping and graphing and figuring out like well if they're not up here yet they must be maybe 10 miles below so it, it definitely fish is different than cave run where those fish are more there's not flow through the entire system in cave run so those fish will set up like on Kincaid where they're on the steeper deeper breaks and they'll go into like a more traditional winter pattern where these fish these fish are basically river fish just about anywhere you are. They, they're really dependent on the flow. So, Chris, let's talk a little bit about bait size and selection down there in Tennessee. Right now, are you primarily using smaller baits, or are you still going, are you using, you know, the typically late fall in, in Wisconsin, Minnesota, they start to go bigger baits. But I know typically also down by you, Lake Kincaid, we hear a lot about small baits, like you said earlier. 22 shorts, 22 longs, the rattle traps and all that stuff. What kind of baits are you using right now? Well, yesterday I had a fish come up and swipe at a 22 Magnum. I use a lot of bigger baits. Trolling, I've been on a pretty good trolling bite last couple weeks, and they, they surprisingly, the bigger baits work better right now for me. Uh, we've been getting them on headlocks, matlocks, slammers, big lures, 13-inch grandmas. 14-inch jakes, 10-inch jakes, stuff like that. But yesterday I had one come swiping this at a 22 Magnum, and then a couple guys who came down last week, they brought some suckers, and I uh, had a sucker out, and 10 minutes later, you know, I, I told 
told the guys I was fishing with, I said, just keep fishing, keep fishing, keep fishing. And then it came back and ate the sucker. So that was pretty cool. That's a new experience for me. I'm not a sucker fisherman. I never do it but because I had a few. It, I kept them in a live well. They stayed alive, and we did get one on a sucker. But uh, the rattle, I've learned, what I've learned from the rattle bite bait on Kincaid is it seems to really kick off when the water hits 40 degrees. And on Cave Run, it seems to be good, too, when the water's cooler and then that bite continues. I have played with the rattle trap bite here. But it hasn't been, it, it doesn't produce for me that well. I do much better on twitch baits and glide baits and ripping big cranks and even some deep diving cranks, you know, I'll crank them down and then rip them up and that works good as well. Let's kind of switch gears so we can kind of get Scott involved in this conversation as well. Let's talk about Illinois. I know, I know you talked about the Tennessee thing a little bit and someday it'd be fun to touch on it a little bit more because it's certainly a really cool place, definitely a place I want to I want to visit sometime. But for the sake of this conversation, I don't want to keep Scott out in the cold for too long. And I know you, I know you two were tournament partners for a long time, and you guys had a ton of success. And I know Chris, you're, you're you've continued that success with a different partner. But I just curious, and I know our listeners sometimes want to know a little bit about tournament fishing. How did you guys? You know, what's the secret to the success? I know there's not one straight word, but like, how do you guys break down all these new waters and find success in, you know, a body of water in a short period of time where you guys are consistently, you know, placing in the top 10? What's, what was the, what was the key? And either one of you two could answer and talk about it a little bit. Sure. I don't mind jumping in. Yeah. I think, you know, when Chris and I fished it, uh, 2009, we had a really good year and ended up top gun team really wanted the championship that following year but um you know the highlight i think when chris and i were fishing the tournament trail was definitely greedy i think winning the chippewa flowers in 2010 that was uh that was a special you know couple days on the water when we talk about success a lot of it's the legwork that goes into it i mean we spend days weeks months years (laughs) researching different systems and a lot of that was just growing up in chicago and you know greedy i think was conceived on lake of the woods (laughs) I was going up to uh, D-Bar-D in Chicago, or up in uh, northern Wisconsin, fishing the Lac du Flambeau chain since I was six. And uh, I think it's just the diversity of fisheries that we've done uh, for so long. And then, you know, being on a system for a long time, Chris and I have fished Lake Kincaid for over 20 years. And with it being 2,700 acres, we get a lot of time on one body of water, and you really get to learn how to pattern these fish year after year. And you learn that a muskie is a muskie <laughs> and you really apply that to, to every system you go to, whether you've got weather moving in, is it a reservoir system? How are they drawing water from it? You know, are we fishing some bogs up north? Are we fishing, you know, Cisco's down deep? It just kind of depends on, on what happens. But the legwork ahead of time pays off. And then when we get to a system, you've heard Reby and Mallard talk about it for years, um, just mapping out information. Um, we would do this just with, you know, an old school Lawrence uh, transducer back in the day and just find balls of bait and find some hooks where now, you know, we're running panoptics and hummingbirds and Lawrence's all next to each other. And um, if you ever see Chris's boat, it looks like a spaceship with all of his graphs. But uh, just getting dialed in is incredible using modern day technology. Um, and of course, not burning fish. You know, that's actually one of the reasons I stopped fishing tournaments is that the, the you know, the amount of time that you're pulling baits from fish, you know, you're, 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 you're leaving your good spots. Um, you know, it's, it's a whole mindset that you have to do. We would see tournament anglers 
burning fish and fishing their best spots all day long. Well, you, you know, you, you, those secondary spots, Chris and I, hopefully, um, remembered as people that would go find our own bite. We weren't radio chasers. We find these little, little fish that haven't been touched in a couple of days and, and it paid off time after time. So, and I see that with Chris now too. Um, just the way he breaks down the waters and to be successful as a professional musky <laughs> angler, uh, I think is one of the toughest fish that swims in the uh, fresh water. Sure. I've always said it before that you can kind of, you could get lucky and you could win a tournament as a musky fisherman and that that's good. But the stuff that you guys do, that top gun team of the year type stuff, I mean, you can't get, I mean, you can, I guess, but odds are you're not mm-hmm. going to get lucky four tournaments in a row. And that's just comes down to you guys knowing the water. So you talked a little bit there about not burning fish on a typical, say pre-fishing. Did you guys spend much time doing that or, or did during your pre-fishing time, did you spend most of it just driving around checking structure, looking for fish. Scott and I, we've been doing this forever, but Scott and I and Matt and I, as a team as well, like we hardly ever fish when we're pre-fishing. Like when it comes a time when you've done it long enough that you don't need to go out and fish to know the fish are there. Like you can put together the edges that you know there's bait and you're in their preferred temperature zone. And it's this seasonal pattern that they should be here. And if you just have enough confidence in what you know ahead of time, and put your legwork in to make sure that the areas you're going to fish, you know how to fish them better than everybody else. Like that's, that, that's the key. Even back, you know, when we started out, I think I had a Lawrence LCX 27 or 18 or something like that. Right. So one of the, like the big things we do is we're going to fish an area and there's a weed edge or a break line or whatever. I just will spend hours driving back and forth. And when, if I want to mark like the, 12 foot break I'd put a blue X on my graph and if I wanted to mark the weed edge I'd put a green X and from I've had guys multiple times come out to me and they go what were you doing out there you look like you're driving around like you're drunk or something I'm like yeah you know I'm just weaving back and forth at 10 to 15 miles an hour and laying waypoints and then after you spend a lot of time doing that and you go back and you look at the structure you'll discover that it's not what you thought it was it was like just little key areas, like a little inside turn or a little point in the weeds that sticks out. And then you're like, okay, well, we got to fish that inside turn and we got to fish that little tip. So as you're fishing along and you'll, you'll say, okay, I'm going to slow down here and make an extra 10 cast in on this part of the structure than I would, you know, the whole time. So that, that's a really big thing. And like Scott said, not burning the fish. So we just spend more time getting really well prepared and then fish as hard as we could when the tournament started. How has new technology actually um, changed that game plan? I know you guys were talking about research on different bodies of waters and what have you. Did did that kind of change with the uh, side imaging? And now you're talking about pan optics and such. Do you approach it differently, would you say? The side imaging is amazing because you can... You can see, you know, there's a lot of areas where when you're doing this pre-fishing or not pre-fishing, but getting, you know, mapping, you'll see like muskies are holding here and there. Um, the side imaging and the electronics have definitely made it a lot easier. But uh, like the live mapping, it's one thing that I know a lot of guys that fish in the PMC that I fish against are like, well, I don't need to do it anymore because I'm live mapping it with my hummingbird. But I order Lorant. So what I found is I tried to do that and it'll read the depth of the top of the weeds or it'll read a school of bait fish. And 
I've also, so I tried to switch over from Lawrence to Hummingbird, but after 20 years that I stared at my Lawrence graph, it, it becomes like a language where it's like when I would lay my waypoints and whether I'm fishing in the pitch black and I can't see my hand in front of my face, I know from my perspective of where my boat is on the graph and where my waypoints are on the graph and where I'm casting to, then I'm probably putting the bait right where it has to be. And when I switched to Hummingbird, you know, the map, it just, it looked like Chinese to me or something, you know, it just didn't look the same. So I had to go, so then I had to put a Lawrence back next to my Hummingbird and then I added a Garmin as well for the Panoptic. The Panoptic is incredible for trolling and, you know, stuff like that with open school, a bait and being able to like see it up ahead and steer towards it. And also like running a weed line and pointing it to the left and seeing that, you know, I'm keeping my bait off of that weed edge. But the other thing about the panoptics is honestly during the tournament, I'll usually turn it off because it becomes a distraction and uh, it's great for guiding and it's, like two or three guys are fishing and the guide is running the boat and looking at the panoptics and you can see follows and the perspective mode is amazing. And you can tell the clients like, Oh, Hey, keep figuring there's a fish and there's a fish down there. You know, that, that's a huge, that's a huge thing. But if you spend too much time in the tournaments looking at it, I think it could hurt your success because it, it actually kind of becomes a distraction. And I've noticed that when I have it at the front of the boat and I'm guiding that it becomes a distraction, the guys are start spending more time looking at the panoptics than they are fishing. But it's a great tool for getting set up and searching. You know, Brad, that's kind of what I was saying when I, with the panoptics this year. I haven't played around with it a lot, but it always just seemed like it was, I don't know, almost like a distraction. Like there's too many screens and too much stuff to look at that you have a hard time just wanting to go fishing. It's really kind of a weird thing in my opinion, just having yeah. all the technology. It's almost overwhelming. Well, I think a, a big part of that is because it's live. It's like, if you aren't watching, you could potentially miss something. And so it, it's almost like you have to be glued to the screen where like side imaging or whatever you, you glance down. Okay. You glance back down and there's a history. So it kind of gives you, it gives it away. You know what I mean? You don't have to stare at it that full time. So let me ask you a question, both of you. If you could only pick one, if you're going to go with like the panoptics or you're going to go with the side imaging, which one is more important? It's, I don't know. I have all three because I honestly found like, I like my learning to the map. Like just probably they, the Garmin probably has a better map than the Lorance, but I've just stared at this, that map for so long that I, I'm kind of resistant to change. And Hummingbird has the best side imaging, in my opinion. So I run that one full-time on side imaging. And then the Panoptics, I don't run it all the time, but it is hard to say to go with one, you know. For me, if I had to go with one, I'd probably go to Lorance and get all the new gadgets with it just because I would have a hard time going away from the map. But that's a hard, very hard question because that's a lot of personal preference, you know? Sure. Well, Scott, let's yeah. get, let's get your personal preference. If you, I do you run sure. panoptics on your boat too. I no, I do not right now, but it's definitely in the, uh, in the works for the new boat. So, um, I've always been a Lawrence guy. I think it's, you know, it's superior for what I'm doing. Uh, the side imaging, I, I've been running the old LS, LSS one, um, with the gen twos on the old school and the, Detail is amazing, even with the down scan. You know, it's it's solid. But 
yeah, the Panoptics is, is in the works. And, and primarily, to be honest, it's going to be for crappie fishing. You know, we've got the state record hybrid crappies on Kincaid Lake. And in the summertime, our water gets too hot to ethically fish. We, we stop at about 80 degrees. Um, just kind of let the fish tell us, but typically it's about 80 degrees surface temps and we switch over to crappies. But, uh, as far as musky fishing goes, you know, I've, I've been real comfortable and, and really happy with my Lawrence units for sure. Well, let's talk sure. a little bit about Kincaid Lake or any of the lakes in Illinois. If somebody's looking to come down, cause obviously right now is a really great time. If they're, you know, obviously they could hire you guys and that would be a great idea. We've always advocated hiring guides cause it can definitely shorten your learning curve. But like, how did you go about learning Kincaid, for example? I mean, let's talk a little bit about that. Again, same thing. Were you guys just driving around? Do you still use paper maps at all, you know, even to reference anything? Yeah, I I do use uh, paper maps still. Um, I'll tell you why, too. The lake's a reservoir, right? So a lot of these state forest maps are going to show you where the old house foundations are. But more importantly, it's going to show you where the roads were to these existing foundations. Uh, We catch a lot of fish. Of knowing where the creek channels are, but where these old roads kind of tickle them a little bit. And that's what really creates kind of a spot on the spot. So for paper maps, you know, I would definitely say because of the foundation, the roadbeds, um, and some of the main lake structure that was there, uh, really important, but definitely utilizing the library, <laughs> which is a word most people don't hear very often. Um, you know, getting it, getting into your local, um, areas, you can really find a lot of information. I mean, just some historical data, um, before the lake was even filled, we'll learn the ecology and, and the stream ecology that the lake had before it was formed, and then really getting a read of how the lake was managed afterwards. Um, we've been fortunate enough that the Illinois Department of Natural Resources to only have three biologists that have touched Kincaid. The current one uh, is absolutely phenomenal. Sean Hurst um, is a huge advocate and um, has produced state record fish in almost all species except muskies, um, which is Lake Shelbyville, which is actually. Kaskaskia River. Um, everyone that knows Illinois musky fishing, I believe that fish was caught on a hook and worm uh, off the bottom of a spillway. So we've been trying to put that one to rest and uh, get one on a musky bait. And uh, we've also been trying to do a, a live release too, Jeff, which is cool. The biologist has a scale at the lake. Really, it's going to be the next two two months. Uh, that pre-spawn bite, if we can get something in her belly, I think it's going to happen. But the biologist keeps a scale at the lake and in hopes of us catching one clients can weigh it right at the boat dock or one of the landings and get her picture with her and release her alive. And, uh, that's definitely what Chris and I are all about with these ethical fishing tactics and, and really trying to put these fish back in the resource. You know, it's, it's a limited resource. You know, we know where they're stocked one per acre. You know, this is our tax dollars at work, but more importantly, um, you know, we take this, this resource and this national force pretty seriously down here. You know, the one thing, let's back up a little bit and talk about Kincaid. For people that don't know, let's, let's, you want to give an overview of it, like talk about fish population density and that kind of stuff. I mean, are there a bunch of fish in there? How, how many acres are, I think you referenced it earlier a little bit. And then obviously you guys have to deal with water level changes. I'm sure that can swell this thing to even, you know, more acres. You want to just kind of talk about the lake in general because there may be a bunch of people in wisconsin that potentially have never heard of lake Kincaid, and so you want to give us an idea just about what we're dealing with here yeah so lake Kincaid was built in 1968 um, lake was finally filled around 72 and was actually first stocked with northern pike so we had east Oxalicious in there for a little while water temps were just too hot uh the siltation coming off the creeks you know we got muddy creeks around here 
definitely not like where Chris was fishing now in Tennessee, but uh, lake got muddy, got silted in, the pike didn't take. And uh, about two or three years later, um, the biologist decided to stock muskies. Um, and at that point, it was one per acre, and it stayed that way since. Uh, with 2,700 acres, we averaged between 2,500 and 3,200 muskies in a 10 to 14-inch range, typically stocked from Jake Wolf Hatchery in Illinois. But, of course, we've been working with uh, the DNR to have some synergy with Ohio and Iowa and, and getting kind of some, some mutt strains in the lake as well. What's different, I think, too, when people think reservoirs, um, a lot of people think lake fluctuations, but we actually have a fixed spillway barrier on Lake Kincaid. They draw from the top of the lake. Um, it, the lake was first built back in 68 as a water retention system for the um, drinking water for the local area within Jackson County. And it's maintained and still functional. Um, but as far as like, you know, back in the day fishing, uh, staying at Tony Grant's place and sneaking down the road and fishing the parking lots, right? I mean, I think we were launching off the highway one time. That doesn't happen <laughs> down here. Right, Reeve, remember that? Oh, yeah. The old portalette bite. Um, I think I caught a, lost a mid-40s on a Manta Hang 10 off a toilet or two off there. Uh, but, yeah, it, on Kincaid, we don't get that that uh, big fluctuation, uh, which which helps. It keeps the main main lake uh, pretty clear throughout the year. The stockfish are great. You know, it's... Uh, the DNR, the last week of March, the first week of February, is going to go ahead and put out some nets. And those are hoop, hoop nets. Illinois Department of Natural Resources pairs up with SIU, Southern Illinois University Fisheries Department. And we get some young up-and-coming guys out there to work the fish. They do some pit tags, some ploy tags, and, uh, which is nice, too, because then throughout the year, as clients are catching fish, we can provide them with some additional data to Sean, and it's kind of a give-give, right? So we give him the data, but then he captures it, and then the client really feels good when he learns that that fish has been caught and released four or five times sometimes. Um, and other times, you know, like a big one that Matt Gunkel caught a couple of years ago, I think she was 48 inches and she hadn't been caught in over six years and still had that, that tag in her. So pretty unique uh, compared for most reservoirs. Yeah. It sounds like, you know, the Illinois department of, you know, natural resources or whatever they end up calling them. It seems like it's different everywhere, but it sounds like yeah, they've, they've done, you know, a, a really great job with managing their musky fishery, fisheries. Cause, um, you know, I think sometimes Illinois fisheries are overlooked and I, I kind of wanted you to lay the foundation for it. One question I did have is with the, with the COVID stuff coming into play for 2020, did you guys still get stocking from last year into Kincaid or was or was your stocking interrupted like we had up here in Wisconsin? Yeah, so actually Jake Wolf did produce some fish, um, and we did get a stocking. I don't think it was at one per acre. I think it was a little bit uh, diminished. But, yes, we did get our stocking in October this year, and those fish were 10 to 14 inches. I don't have the numbers on those right now, um, but the hatchery was able to produce some. We also have some local um, ponds around the lake that Sean manages. That's been known to have a couple fish in them. Um, they get stocked in addition to the stocking reports that people would see on maybe a uh, government website. So you kind of touched briefly about water clarity and, and how they draw that water. What is the water clarity down there? I mean, are you dealing with uh, any zebra mussels? Are you algae blooms? I'm, I'm assuming are pretty dominant, but you know, what kind of water clarity at this time of the year? It's got to be pretty clear. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, Brad, it's uh, the main lake's absolutely beautiful. Um, you know, we've got probably for down here, you know, six feet, five, six feet, um, on the main lake, which is really good. And it's not that it's stained. Uh, you kind of get that Southern green color to it. 
Main Lake is always pretty clear from about Buttermilk Point down to the main basin. Um, you get down towards the dam, sometimes you can get visibility down about 8, 10 feet. Right now, up in Johnson's Creek, which is our headwaters, we've got Johnson Creek and Kincaid Creek that comes in. Huge amount of fish up there, but you can literally walk on the water. Uh, we just had an inch of rain last night. It's still raining right now. If I went up there right now, kicked on the trolling motor, literally I'd be blowing particles up. Um, it can get pretty nasty. I still have confidence fishing in that water. Um, if you talk to a lot of guys on Southern Reservoirs, sometimes we look for that nasty water. Um, but guys coming down from Wisconsin and Minnesota, we've learned that it's just, uh, you know, when you're fishing, you got to feel it. And if, if those guys aren't feeling it because the water's too dirty, we will move out of that area and maybe move into the water treatment area or Five Fingers or Cochran, um, which is just some of the big feeder creeks that come in throughout the lake. And, of course, with Southern Reservoirs, Chris knows all too well. Usually the first fish of the year comes out of the marina, and that's been historic for the last 15, 20 years. Yeah, I've, I've fished some of those marinas down on Cave for sure. I mean, it, it's always a good spot to start looking. What kind of weed growth do you have down there then throughout the summer? Is it something that dies off now at this time of the year, or does it just kind of stay somewhat consistent? It does not stay consistent at all. Uh, we've got a couple different types of milfoil. Where Wisconsin, I remember Eagle River, they would do the uh, weed kill for that Eurasian milfoil, and it would just mess up fishing. Where in southern Illinois and lakes like Palm de Terre and Fellows Lake over in Missouri, we crave for Eurasian milfoil. It just grows wild, and um, even in the mucky water, you know, it puts off a lot of oxygen. And I think without that invasive species or that invasive plant in the lake, um, I don't think the musky fishing would be as good. That, that milfoil is kind of a barrier weed, anywhere from two to six feet. It's matted. You get off that milfoil, and you're going to get into some real nice coontail in that eight to ten foot range. Um, and, and that's where usually the big girls are. What's interesting, too, is we've got a good weed growth through the spring, but it gets so hot. Our surface temps get almost 90 degrees, and it really nukes those shallow water re- re- uh, weeds. So if you're up in you know six, eight feet um, in June, you may be fishing a frog. Uh, plastic frog for some bass up on the mats. You come back in October, almost all of that stuff is dead, and we get a revergence of weeds as the lake cools down into that 60, 70 degree range. And then you actually get a late fall or an early fall weed growth bloom. You'll see the coontail kind of uh, the plumage on top get bigger. The fish use it a little bit different. They seem to be a little bit higher up in the water column where the green weeds are. It's been interesting to learn. It's taken a little while to understand the weed growth out there and there's times, too, where, you know, if it gets too muddy, you might not have any weeds on the north end till about the end of May. And then you can really get into some pockets that are beneficial. So let's shift gears and, and kind of start talking about forage base. I'm, I'm guessing you got a ton of shad. What other uh, forages would you have? So uh, threadfin shad and gizzard shad are both stocked predominantly in the lake every year. Um, the biologist really likes to focus on the threadfin shad. And that's something that took me a little while to learn on the lake is I used to target the gizzard shad because bigger bait, bigger fish, uh, which is not the case. I think these muskies eat threadfin over a gizzard shad tenfold. And even young of the year, gizzards pop off at one to three inches. Those threadfin and gizzard shad are not the only, of course, things in the lake that the muskies enjoy. We've got spotted suckers, but we've also got a, quite a few populations of small crappie, um, which I know a lot of guys don't like to hear, but they definitely... Um, target open water crappies in the wintertime. Um, we definitely get them off cribs 
if you guys are familiar with some of those deep water cribs, the DNR has about 50 cribs on the lake that they actually produce each year. And then with the amount of anglers on the lake, there's probably about a thousand total. So you can literally go around kind of picking them apart and that's been really beneficial. I've also seen a huge movement of smaller carp, which I know sounds a little weird. These muskies are definitely targeting carps as they spawn in some of the smaller baits that are moving in. But gizzard shad, threadfin shad is, is what we primarily focus on. And Scott, I know it's got something that we like to talk about and eating crappies, but the fact that the muskies are eating crappie has definitely created a trophy crappie fishery. And oh, yeah. There's like, there'll be 20, 10, 20 crappie anglers out taking their limits all day in the spring and it doesn't hurt the lake. Does I, it? I, yeah, I think it does put a little pressure on it. But, you know, I was out there last weekend with clients and the musky bite was phenomenal. But at the end of the day, you know, we all share our stories in the parking lot. And that's one of my favorite times, uh, you know, to end the day with is just kind of, you know, sharing our stories. And uh, one guy had three over three pounds um, in the live well. And, it, you know, that speaks to the fishery. It's doing well, but it also speaks to maybe a little bit more education that's needed. You know, we've, we've really right. educated anglers, you know, from... Larry Ramsell back in the day to, you know, to Pete, to, you know, teaching this catch and release at, you know, CPR. Um, but I think that those guys, it, it's a weird stigma down here too, Jeff. You know, you've got guys that used to kill a lot of muskies, to be honest. You know, the bass anglers did not like the muskies in there. You've got gar, spotted gar, long nose gar. You know, we've got a lot of junk fish that comes up the big muddy river and these guys were used to these. So when they would see a toothy critter, to them, it's a gar, you know, they're going to slit their throat and throw it on the, the river bank and, you know, props to Chad Kane and Al Nutty and some of the original guys down here that would really put down their rods and pull up to these other anglers and speak to what we're doing and, and, and why the passion's there and, um, you know, celebrate why they caught a muskie and help them out. So even in the summertime when the water's 90 degrees, I might be trolling for some walleyes or some crappies, but I do have a, you know, a folding fray bill underneath the uh, bow that I pull out to help guys that might have tied into one in the middle of summer. And uh, that's helped exponentially. I haven't seen anything like that in a couple of years. But uh, it's definitely taken, you know, <laughs> just about 10, 15 years to, to educate the population down here. Well, it definitely starts with education, that's for sure. And uh, I've done the same thing on some of my home water where uh, a walleye guy or maybe a pike guy, they're doing the same thing. They've got their little 1960s uh, green netting walleye bag, I guess you'd call it. But, uh, yeah. You know, they put a muskie in there and they don't realize that uh, there is a size limit on the lake and so on and so forth. And, hey, it's just a common mistake with a lot of these people. They just don't know any better. And the only way you're going to get them to know is uh, visiting with them. That's for sure. You don't have to pass them. It's just uh, it's a few nice words and take some pictures for them and help them out. It's gone so far down here that we were the habitat committee chairman for a long time with the Shawnee muskie hunters, the local muskie chapter. And when we were doing these lake cleanups and doing these, um, enrichment programs, we tied into the bass clubs, we tied into the crappie clubs. And I, when I speak at a lot of different clubs, I, I encourage them to connect with other anglers. We're all in this together, right? There are resources. You know, I think that there's a huge ego boost with, uh, muskie guys, but you have to have a little bit of, confidence you have to have a little bit of ego to, to get on these fish and be consistent but at the same time we can shelve all that stuff and uh you know we're, we're out there to really enjoy the outdoors and that's what it's all about i i tell guys you know 
instead of staring at a panoptics or staring at your figure eight all the time, take a couple minutes, look up, there's eagles. It's beautiful, right? You know, enjoy the scenery and uh, enjoy while we're out there. Yeah, I, I would agree with you guys. I mean, I think definitely a lot of anglers, uh, you know, just the guiding side, you guys know, you guide. A lot of times they are so focused. I think it almost screws up their whole game, honestly. I mean, you're supposed yeah. to have fun in this sport. When you get good guys in the boat, like this friend of mine, Tom Kelly, just fished with me yesterday. It was 32 degrees out. And he had told me last year, he said, he said, Chris, when I get a muskie, he goes, I got a lot of lady fans out there and I'm taking my shirt off because I used to lift weights and they want to, they want to see me. And I said, all right. So he got a muskie and we got it in the net. He actually had a, has a blown knee and he was wearing a brace. And he, I said, so Tom, you taking your shirt off an hour later? He said, let's do it. Took the shirt off 32 degrees outside. <laughs> Great picture. <laughs> got to have a little fun out there. That's it. It's about having fun a lot of the time. You know, you got to have fun. And Tom decided to strip down and <laughs> I'm pretty sure I saw that picture on Facebook yesterday. <laughs> I think a lot of people talk. <laughs> Chris and I try to stay pretty quiet, to be honest. You know, it, it's just, uh, we fish these smaller waters. We do use Facebook as kind of our, our platform to, to show off some fish, but, uh, you know, usually it's, it's nice to stay quiet in the day of social media. You know, we're, Chris and I are an open book, you know, anybody that's coming down to our area, please reach out. We're more than happy to, to, to disclose, you know, it, it's, it's more about getting people out there and enjoying stuff. But at the same time, there's definitely a balance of, uh, social media presence and having fun with it because it, it can have an impact. You know, you see a lot of guys on some of the great lakes that only post pictures in the, winter time during their off season and we get it you know we get it but at the same time you know I, I think in the winter time with a lot of guys frozen up like you guys are up north seeing us on the open water and catching fish you know they can they can live through our memories and really get them excited for the season and um, you know i think it comes full circle i know i i always like seeing guys in the south catching muskies just i mean it, it's a reminder to us that better days are ahead you know just because absolutely i mean we have such a long you know, a, a fairly long winter, especially, you know, the Minnesota guys, they can't even fish till the 1st of June where, or somewhere in that vicinity. But, you know, us in Wisconsin, at least we get that southern opener so we can kind of get that scratch that itch a month earlier. But we were still talking, so it's almost the end of January. We still have three months off season for sure. So I always like seeing guys down south and what they're catching. And, you know, I mean, the, the, fish, the fish that they catch down there are, you know, awfully impressive too. We appreciate that. Yeah, Chris has been on some real fat ones. And just last weekend, uh, we got nine up to 43. And the 43 inches is a nice fish, you know. You got to remember, too, you know, where, where Chris is at, you're definitely chasing a 50 incher. But if you're on Lake Kincaid, you're really in it for a numbers lake. You know, it's 42 to 45 is a, a nice fish out there. 45 to 48 is probably our trophy. Anything over 48, you've got a unicorn. I think that's due to the hot water and these fish getting stressed. You know, if they party hard young and and, and die young and uh that's just kind of what it's become but uh yeah definitely some nice fish you know especially this time of year you know from now till spawn you got to remember these are stocked fish you know we would if these were natural spawning fish we would not be targeting them the impact uh on anglers during this time you're looking at less than one percent success rate of the spawn anyways so that's why we do target them um, i think that's good to bring up too jeff is you know we have an open season throughout the year and Illinois does not have a closed season in the summertime. These are anglers ethically putting their rods away and targeting other species 
or going to visit Brad up north or, you know, spending some time in your neck of the woods, Jeff. Actually, speaking of that, so in Tennessee, the reason I leave in March and I go over, one of the biggest reasons I leave and go over to Fisher Scott for the month of March is that these fish here, they are naturally reproducing. They were, they have been here forever. Like they were, a lot of the fish here were killed off by coal mining and the industrial revolution and pollution. But, you know, there's lots of small streams in the Cumberland Plateau that have always had muskies. And a lot of these Tennessee rivers have always had muskies. I've got a really cool article from uh, Field and Stream from 1956. It's about the jack to the south, and they like called them in. They said they're very closely related in comparison to their relative, the musclons of the north. But like down here, they just got the name, they called them jack, which is interesting. But they've been here forever, and our stocking here is very limited. Um, we do not have a good stocking program, unfortunately. Like Jim Negus, plus his soul, like this that guy is the only reason that we have muskies again in Tennessee. But for the numbers of muskies that I'm catching in certain areas, there's no possible way that it's from the stocking. And in some areas, I've caught muskies where they weren't stocked within 50 miles of there this year, and they were 22 inches long. There's there's like no way they could end up there. So we do have natural regression. So I, I myself try to take a break from here and leave. And I've been trying to put that in the, you know, put that out there to some other people, but you know, they do fish for them here all year, but there is a time when you should probably leave them alone here because without natural reproduction, we're not going to have them much longer here. I don't believe that it'll be that great, you know? Yeah, good point. Yeah, it's, it's but, good to just always get out there, that conservation-minded, you know, we'd like to, we preach on that quite a bit on this podcast about, you know, us taking care of the resource because, like you said, I mean, with, with uh, Chris talking in Tennessee, there's no no stocking there so you know if you do have a naturally reproducing system you want to you want to do the best you can to hold that off which is you know i was a little surprised to think a few years back with uh it was michigan i think it was they went to no close season and i know most of those guys still abide by the the previous rules but you know you know i think it's on st Clair. i think there's actually no there's no close season on st Clair, but i think most most everybody is still going off of what used to be the season because they want to take mm-hmm. care of that resource because there is such good natural reproduction out there. I, th- I think you could fish for them all falling into the winter until you have hard water and you're not going to hurt them, but they probably just didn't fish for them right at ice out, you know? Yep. Well, one of the reasons that Minnesota has the season that they have one for the spawning in the spring, but also, um, you know, it used to be that it was told the end of the year, you know? So the first of the year was the season they changed that so that early ice wouldn't be effective trying to catch these muskies as well. We have uh, a couple different things going on over here in the state during the ice fishing season. We have uh, legalized spearing of northern pike. Well, if it's a closed season, it basically gives the CEO another advantage of writing another ticket. So that's one of the reasons why it exists here for the season. I think that's why Northern Wisconsin closed too on that season was because of the ice fishing harvest on it. And they were worried about that, which is why they put that provision. in. now that they allow us to go to the end of December, they put that provision in that you can't target them through the ice. So to, I'm sure it's to limit harvest on, on muskies during ice fishing season. I think a really cool thing that you guys do, Jeff, isn't it once the lake caps, the season is closed? Uh, well, the season, yeah, yes, technically you cannot 
fish for muskies once the ice forms. Yes. Right. That was so. that was new, I believe, this year though. That was this is the first year that we did that. Okay, that's interesting. Well, they used to always close the season off at the end of November for the northern section. Well, sometimes you could still fish a little longer. Lately, we've been getting these really cold early, you know, the, the winter's been setting up earlier. The ice has been coming on earlier, so it wouldn't have mattered. But this year, it was, it was nice. We were able to enjoy musky fishing into December in some of those northern waters, especially like Green Bay. That's one that usually wasn't frozen by the 30th of November. So it gave, it gave guys an extra, you know, whatever, probably two, three weeks of fishing this year that they wouldn't have been able to get otherwise. One thing you have to look at when you're targeting these spawning muskies and how it can impact systems where you have natural spawning is we've learned that there is a high concentration in a very small area of water. If you get a couple guys in a system that figures it out, they're going to wreck them. <laughs> I guarantee it. You know, 10 fish days are not uncommon. And, uh, you know, I think you could probably do some damage on some small systems if there was an open season on a naturally spawning, you know, lake system. Uh, the amount of fish within a small area is proven by the DNR nets. You know, we'll be in, in a couple coves and, you know, we'll, we'll get 60 or 70 fish from now till March. But then the DNR comes in with their nets and they're pulling 17 to 25 fish every 24 hours out of every net they have in these coves. So it really speaks, you know, you're, you're fishing a, a little two acre, little neck of the lake. And you're, you know, we're, I'm, I'm thinking there might be 200, 250 fish that we're targeting um, in a very small area. So that's, that's definitely something to think about. That's pretty cool. So let's talk about targeting fish right now. What type of structure for people that are, if anybody's interested in either coming down booking a trip with you, what type of structure are you looking to target right now? Well, midwinter, it's, it's a little funky, right? You can be trolling some big baits, you know, out on the main lake. Um, actually, you know, <laughs> my mom got me a uh, chartreuse thunder, uh, 10 inch Jake from you over, uh, Christmas time. And it's been a hot bait trolling the open water. There's definitely some big schools of shad on the main lake. But, uh, if I was a betting man, I'd definitely be fishing some shallow spawning flats, you know, dark bottoms. Uh, the weed growth right now is matted down about two to three feet off the bottom. That milfoil is still green too. So it's, it's dying off, but it's producing oxygen. And a lot of fish in that six to eight foot range. You know, a lot of times I say when you get to the lake, definitely drive around and look for shad. But there's something a little bit different this time of year that the muskies are not targeting the mass schools of muskies that are preparing to spawn are not targeting shad. Uh, I, I, it's my belief they're eating small bluegills and some other game fish and some topwater minnows and river darters and some stuff in these creeks that are coming in. You know, it, it can be a lot of camping. So what I mean by that is we might be fishing two to three coves for over two to three days and not moving more than 100 or 200 yards once you kind of figure it out. Bait-wise, of course, we've been, you know, talking about Tony Grant's rattling shads for years, but there's an array of baits that works. You know, Chris and I have always been a huge Hell Puppy fan, especially your criminal color. <laughs> you can't go around with the criminal down in Southern Illinois. But uh, if, if you've been in Chris and I's boats, you know, shallow invaders time and time again, are, they just produce, you know, year after year, season after season. And, uh, it's been kind of one of our magical baits, both in Tennessee and in Southern Illinois. The shallow invader is by far the best bait for my boat. <laughs> that uh, we are, yeah. you can catch them straight, retrieving them fast, slow, switching them. It's like it's, no matter what you do, they it's it's the top producer for sure in the world. It's like this turned into a musk innovations commercial all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah, no, no, neither Chris or I are sponsored by them. And it, <laughs> 
We left got about 65 of them in the boat, and I paid full price for every one of them. So. <laughs> Happily, right? <laughs> Happily. 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 Yeah. Well, getting back to your your Christmas gift, Scott, I saw the last name Donovan, and I I was always curious if that was headed to you or some one of your family members. So it's good to know that you're the one that got it. And I'm glad to hear it's getting eaten. So that's cool. Yeah, and I appreciate that. Yeah, my my wife uh, always gets me a couple care packages, and then my mom my mom was going to write you a letter back because she said you guys are one of the most in tune to customers and personal service she's received in a long time. Oh, that's she's good. like, I'm going to write this guy Jeff. And I was like, Well, actually, you could. I can just call them if you want to. <laughs> so, well, we, we appreciate what you do for the industry too. These these custom colors, um, you know, I'm I'm not a huge color guy, but I definitely love my bars and I love uh, contrast on baits. And uh, your custom colors have been second to none, so I, we appreciate that. Yeah, well, like I said, we certainly appreciate all our customers. We say it in this podcast every single week. You know, much like Musky Mayhem, the same thing is, you know, without customers we're nothing we're just a couple of guys hanging out talking fishing and so you know it's important to us that that people continue to shop with us that's what that's the only payment we get from this podcast is if somebody makes a purchase with either team rhino outdoors or musky mayhem tackle and we can't thank everybody enough well i'll tell you that that small trigger baby brand has been phenomenal down here but we, we fish a lot of double colorados but uh that little thump that falls and produce some nice fish and we've got one in the 45 range and in a dozen in that 38 40 range so definitely not just a northern bait uh if you guys are coming down south that triggers a hot bait that's awesome to hear yeah i know uh i had some guys down in indiana throwing it early this year when we were first prototyping it and it definitely was effective down there yes mm-hmm. a reservoir fish react <laughs> that much especially on travel burn you know as fast as you can go with the train yeah, that's awesome. It's super awesome to hear, and I, I appreciate you telling me that. I uh, And if I can help you, give me a shout. Thanks, Greg. So if we don't mind digging into this a little bit, right now you said, you know, the fish are kind of all over the place, big, small. If you're spending some time trolling, are you guys erring on the side of a lot of speed? Like, how fast are you guys going these days? Because I know it was late last fall. I took a trip to southern Wisconsin, and I was, I was uh, texting – with a friend of mine, Jeff Hansen, with Madison Muskie Guide Service, and you know he's kind of going over the the range, and he's like, "Well, how fast are you going? What are you doing?" And I, you know, I told him, and he's like, "I'll dial up the speed a little bit." Are are you are you guys on the air of hot, you know fast during this time of year yet, or you know are you guys pretty much slowing it down? Let me take this, and then well, Scott's answer will probably be different. But I myself here lately, the water where I've been getting them pulling since forty two degrees, and I've been getting bites between three and three point two with big baits, and I have set up and got bites like at three five, and then I've been setting rods and going like two six and got bites. So I'm I've been a little bit confused, but that two six to three two range normally though it's like almost you get dialed into like one number, and it's really good. But I have been going a little bit slower, forty two degree water, and the other thing that's interesting is I've been finding fish uh, suspended on the trolling bite in 42 degree water and the gizzard shad that they're eating because I've snagged a whole bunch of them they're really stressed out and have red marks all over them because mm-hmm. they're not that accustomed to so that slows the shad down when the water gets cold but they're not that the shad don't do good with the cold water down here there's usually a shad die off and we definitely have colder water than what we normally hit but um the one thing that this goes against everything that I ever talk about is there's like 
45 degree water that's close and adjacent to three degrees. And sometimes I find one degree makes a difference, but these muckies are in the 42 degree, 40 to 42 degree water because that's where the shad are. And I don't understand really honestly why the shad are in the 40 degree water either because I think that they're not, they don't like the cold, that cold water, but they're there for whatever reason, like in the masses. So that's one time when like bait trumps temperature. And that's what I'm seeing right now. And I, I hardly ever see that happen. But that's an interesting thing. Those shad are in pure survival mode right now at that temp. So, you know, your yeah. red fins are going to start kicking the bucket and your gizzards are going to be tweaked out, especially with I, those red marks too. I snagged like six gizzards in the last few days and they've got red marks all over them. And I'm like, oh, wow, these don't look good. Mm-hmm. And I actually caught one muskie like five days ago that was in really cold water too. And it had those red marks all over it. And it looked, and I would almost say like, I thought it was unhealthy, but it was, it did not look good. The fish itself did not look good, but it fought super hard. It ate the bait, no problem. And it had a 23 inch girth and it was only 43 and a half inches long. So it was <laughs> fat enough that I girthed it, you know? So I was like, okay, at 20, 43 and a half inch by, 23 that is a super fat fish it probably exceeded 25 pounds but it had those same red marks all over it that the shad gets i don't see that very often and i've been kind of it's been pondering me like all week like thinking what was wrong with that fish you know mm-hmm. but there was definitely something wrong with that with the monkey as well it seemed like it was stressed out for mm-hmm. whatever reason and we caught it quick it was like you know, it was hooked, it was in the bag in 30 seconds. It was like in for a pitcher and back in the water in three minutes, you know. And I saw the red marks in it the first time it rolled up on the bait. So it wasn't like it got stressed out as it was in the bag or anything like that. It just had red red blotches all over it, you know. Mm-hmm. It's interesting how you guys talk about you have cooler water temperatures than you normally would because up here in the north, like it's been somewhat mild winter for us. I mean... I think a lot of the lakes, the bigger lakes are probably only, I mean, maybe they're a foot of ice right now. And normally it's 24 for sure. A lot of lakes are not even driving trucks out on right now because of how mild it's been for us up here. The average winter temperature in Tennessee is 57 degrees is, you know, what they say is average. And we'll have like a couple cold days over here in Eastern Tennessee where it'll get in the twenties at night, maybe be like this below freezing in the morning. That's like what would be typically considered cold. Well, it's been like that for five weeks. It's just now starting to warm up and I haven't been here my whole life, but I've been here for the last five winters and this is by far the coldest I've ever seen it. Brad, I bet you could go for some 30 degree temperatures about now, huh? That, That wouldn't seem too cold to me. You know, strangely enough, um, I would say it's only been about a week where we've had, like, the drastic change anyway. We have had an unusually warm, I guess, I, would, I wouldn't I would say the fall, because October it was wintertime. <laughs> Absolutely. We had about a, a two-week stretch in October where I'm like, whoa, what's going on here? We had 8 to 10 inches of snow, and the water temps dropped so fast, it was insane. And then November, it warmed back up. And, and that's been kind of a trend the last three years or so. But, um, you know, honestly, from December through January, I mean, we're almost through January. This is the first week where it's been, like, days and days where it's been cold. So I can't complain at all. No. And you're right. You're right about the ice, Jeff. I mean, we're anywhere from 12 to 18 inches of ice. And I know 
in the past winters, I mean, guys were looking at extensions for their augers. So yeah, we've been pretty fortunate. Well, normally by, I mean, like you said, we're late January. Normally by now we'd have at least a couple of those cold blasts where it's like, you know, where it says zero is going to be the high temperature of the day and it's minus 28 overnight or whatever it is. We haven't had anything that's been, we barely even had temp, like all of our high temperatures for the most part are above 15 for sure, which is, you know, to them that sounds super cold, but for us, when you don't have those days where the you know wind chill is minus twenty, it's that's a win for us in January. Just refresh my memory. Where are you at, Brad? Um, I am by Alexandria, Minnesota, which uh, okay. I guess the best way to explain it is Lake Miltona is probably three miles from my house. Got it. That's what I thought. Well, aren't you here for the PMTT Championship with Matt? Yeah, we've won. We've won that one. That's what I thought. I was trying to. I'm trying to remember what year it was. Well, three, um, about three years ago or so, four years. Three, yeah, three years ago. I bet it's more like five, guys. <laughs> it, it could be. Time goes by so fast. You wouldn't. You'd never know. I uh, I so, got really lucky with that whole deal. I was getting a ton of phone calls for that whole deal. I was actually out west hunting, so I kind of missed all the the hoopla, if you will. Well, we stayed at Drake Herd's house. He, he, yep. Well, we stayed in my camper, and we parked my camper in Drake's backyard, and. Drake helped us out a little bit with the lake, of course. Like he's a good friend, and that that was nice of him. And he he keyed us into a couple spots, and it worked out. You know, it it, it definitely helped us out a lot with that a little bit of intel going in. That's never a bad thing to have. You know, I'm kind of curious about what actually took place then. From my understanding, was you were you were maybe attracting the fish with a supermodel, and then we're yeah. catching them on a uh, on a boat. I think a pounder, if I'm not mistaken. So Drake heard told us that there was there's a rock bar on the lake that's not on the map, and it it on a, at that time it, it's not on the ship or anything, and it's one of the few rock bars on Milkona. And Drake had told us that the week before they had 60 follows there, but they couldn't get a bite. So we went there, we checked it out, we you know, we, we mapped it all out, but we just said, okay, we're not going to fish it. We'll fish it during the tournament. So going into the tournament, I think I had seen one fish out of bar fighter. But, so starting the tournament out, it threw bar fighters for a while and then went back to the classic, like slow rolling a supermodel and Matt's really good with rubber. So Matt was throwing a pounder and I was getting all these follows on the supermodel and they would just sit there. Like they would like fall into the boat and the lake's so clear they would like follow the bait in and then they just kind of like came out by the boat down, you know, 10, 12 feet down. After that happened a few times, I'm like, Matt, put, you know, put the bulldog down there see if you can get it going. So we, uh, he, he went in with the pounder and was doing big circles and he's like four or five times around before all of a sudden the fish would like get excited and come up on it. And then, um, I think we got a 51 in the tournament or a Fifty and a half. I I should know this, but I can't remember. But it was fifty something. Um, but he uh, it went around. He probably did five or six big circles, and then the fish got active, and then it followed it five or six more times. And we were looking at each other, freaking out. He's like, "What should I do? What should I do? I, I, I don't know what this fish is going to do because it was so weird, you know. I'm like, go deep, pull it up in the corner, and he did. He went deep, and then he pulled it up in the corner, and it and it ate it. And then uh, we did that 
a bunch of times. We had a bunch of fish going like that, but uh, we only got two to eat. So it was like a true, it was a very truly a team effort, you know, because they would not follow the pounder in, which I, I, I still am confused about that. I don't think that Matt had very many follows, but they they were just totally enthralled with that uh, supermodel coming in slow, but they wouldn't eat it. Yeah, it's it's crazy. I mean, that was what, mid-October? Yeah, mid-October. It was right after turnover. So what I figured was it, it was definitely, you know, turnover, and Drake had told us that he'd seen a ton of fish in this area. And they would follow and follow and follow and wouldn't eat. And then we kind of experienced the same thing. They would follow but wouldn't, didn't really want to eat. And it makes sense. They were like up shallow on this big rock bar during turnover, exactly where they should be. And, uh, but, the you know, doing the switcheroo on them really worked out for us. If we could have, you know, there, there was no, I think there was three, we caught, there was three fish caught on day one and we caught two and then one other team caught a fish on day two and day two, the wind blew hard. You know, there was six foot waves where we were fishing and I think we had a couple follows, but that was it on day two. Six foot? Sounds like a true musky fisherman there. Oh man, I remember that. It was that. like five, six foot waves. Seriously? It no was, kidding. it was unbelievable. I've, I, Matt, Matt, you're in Matt Bodia. He's got it his old boat, he had a 72 inch shaft trolling motor on the 690 pillar. Yeah. And I, I was in the front of the boat and the trolling motor was blowing out of the water by a foot, yeah, like all motor. the way out of the water. And then the bow was slamming down. And like, there was like 50 gallons of water coming over the front of the boat. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Nasty. Huh? I had to do yeah, about everything guy. I could during that tournament to stay in the in the boat. It was so brutal on the day two. It was terrible. Complete opposite of day one. Day one was nice. Flat, calm, sunny, wow. perfect. Day two, horrible. And if you can remember, if you know which way the wind was going, we were in the windiest spot on the lake. Yep. We spent some time down in that area. Yeah. I don't know if we ever saw you or not. I was too busy trying to stay in the boat. So, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, it was... <laughs> The beauty of, our, of this lake is that uh, the flats in the center of the lake really, really make those waves get crazy. And the neat thing about it is, is that it pushes that chop almost together, you know. So they're not that wide apart. Like, say you're on Mille Lacs, I mean, you get out there and you've got time between each wave. Where on Miltona, it's not that way. I mean, they, they get stacked on top of one another. Is it All sand? Is it, are they sand or is it rocks out there? It's probably all rocks, eh? Mostly sand on the Miltona, wouldn't you say? Yeah, it's mostly sand. There's, yeah. you know, what's interesting is, is during the 30s, during the Dust Bowl days, basically what, what took place is they were, you know, the water had gone down so far, guys were farming part of the lake. And uh, when they were farming that, what they did is they, they rolled those rocks basically out to the water edge so that they could farm that. And, uh, we get to fish those rocks that those uh, farmers actually pushed out there. Oh, it's almost like our, our reservoir's down here. That's awesome. Yeah. Brad, that rock bar that we were fishing then, so that was, that's like man-made. Oh, yeah, hands down. Hands down it is, yep. I. <laughs> it's funny, you know, you guys said that Drake showed you that, and I think I showed Drake that probably 10 years ago or better. And um it's it's kind of a good little kept secret, if you will. But uh, it's been exposed, that's for sure. Yeah, I probably hope I didn't get Drake in trouble there. 
No, not even a little. No. I mean, that, like I said, it's been exposed. Um, and, and then there's some other rocks that are similar to that, but not really in a pile, if you will. I mean, there's scattered rocks in the north end as well. So, you know, they farm that north end. They farm the, the east side. And uh, basically, like I said, I mean, it was uh, the work of a farmer that uh, helped provide some structure for us. That spot was loaded with fish when we were during a championship. It was like... It was loaded, which that that's cool, you know. I mean, they were they were all over that, but it yeah, seems I, like really good fishery, and there was fish all over the lake. And I I talked to lots of guys who had follow after follow after follow, and they couldn't get them to eat. But this was just really they were in that turnover stage, I guess, where they were difficult to catch. Yeah, when I first seen the dates that you guys were coming for that PMTT, it. Uh, <laughs> I thought, man, oh man, you guys are coming at the worst time possible. It proved to be that way. I mean, uh, the number of fish that were caught was way down, and, and primarily it was based on on that turnover time frame. So, you guys, uh, hats off to you. You guys scored and you made it work for yourself. Yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. It wasn't so much fun for me, Brad. <laughs> I was one of those. I was one of those guys that had follow after follow after follow. I was actually, uh, what was I casting? Headlocks. If I was casting a headlock, I was getting fish to follow and follow after follow after follow. Biggest fish I've ever seen follow too. Multiple fifties probably up, but I couldn't get a single one of them to bite. Apparently, I should have dropped the pounder in front of them. Cool to hear you guys talk about how dialed in you get to a lake, and I think for most people think when they get to the lake is that they're looking at the surface where, where you know anglers like us really are we're not seeing the water we see the structure on the bottom and and we we, we kind of read it right i mean I, I don't look at the lake as water I, I really look at it as how the bottom contour and structures read and when i hear you talk about farmers back in the day manually moving boulders to create the structure we fish today i mean that's that's awesome that's that was a cool story i appreciate that yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's it's super cool to even really know. You know, it yeah. it's one of them deals. I mean, that yeah, most people would never think about that. You know. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Today here was a rain day. It was raining today, and then it cleared up, and I didn't go fishing. But took a break today, but I knew rain was coming. Water's going to get muddy. It's the lowest it's been in forever that I can remember and the water is like 15 foot biz. So there was some areas I went to where I could be like up about 25, 30 feet above the water from land. And I drove around today and I looked at spots that I fish and I got, have a whole new perspective on a few of them at the end of the day today that like some stuff that I didn't really hundred percent realize what it looked like. Cause I could see it with my eyes, but I've been learning a lot this year about some of the spots that I fish just because it's so clear and low you know, 15 foot visibility, you can see a lot down there. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would, I've said this for years, you know, it's, it's so important. I mean, electronics definitely help you. Right. But you know, most mornings here in Minnesota anyway, are pretty calm and I deal with a lot of wind. I mean, people think of North Dakota being windy. We're not that far away from that. And we, we deal with a ton of wind as you guys seen in the tournament or whatever, but the thing that you can do a lot of times, especially in our clear water up here, is get out there in the morning and just cruise around for a half hour or two hours, whatever it might be, 
and you can definitely visually see the different structures that you want to go fish and, and lay it out, you know, stand on the bow and run that motor and just look around. And um, you're going to get a whole different perspective. I mean, the electronics definitely are key, but using your own two eyes and just cruising around on a calm morning or a calm day, it doesn't matter. Um, check things out. One of the things that I do hear that uh, on the rivers, when there's like super high flow and we've had like a lot of rain, the, the rivers are up a little bit, but if they're moving, like there's a huge difference between like 5,000 CFS in Tennessee or like sometimes it's 25,000 CFS coming out of the dam. Well, I don't always have to go out and fish. I mean, I fish every day. So I'll go out and I'll drive the shorelines at five miles an hour for eight hours and look at like little small areas that the water turns around and goes the other direction where like most guys would just drive right past it. They'd never notice it, but there might be like an eddy that's 10 foot around. Well, that, that eddy will hold fish the next time that you go fishing there that you see the water turn around backwards and the leaves are, I'm sure the bubbles are going upriver, you know, and but there's a lot of little key small areas like that that guys miss. But the only way you would learn it is by either fishing, you know, miles and miles and miles of river or driving miles and miles and miles of river and looking for it when the flow is up and taking a break from fishing, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's incredible. It's good stuff to, to hear. So, Scott, for people that are looking to come down to Kincaid or any southern reservoir for that matter, there's obviously got to be a selection of baits that they should make sure that they have in their tackle box. You want to talk a little bit about what they better be bringing with them? Absolutely. You know, and I think, you know, when you get on Team Rhino Outdoors and you look at some of the custom colors, you know, if you get in our tackle box, you're going to see a lot of white, orange bellies, a lot of bright chartreuses, you know, and then we go for that natural kind of shad pattern. As far as bait selection, you know, you, you can't go wrong with some smaller bucktails, you know, like a 8-9 trigger, you know, DC-8 from Lungeon. Uh, you've heard time and time again the 22 shorts they still produce. I'd switch it up a little bit right now and probably throw a, a 22 SS. Um, that square bill, that coffin bill seems to be putting a little bit more fish in the boat, primarily because the fish are up on those spawning flats. But slammer, 5-inch shallow minnows are phenomenal can't go wrong with baby depth raiders, maybe some small soft shads, crime bosses. As far as rubber goes, you know, we really do well with the regular dogs. You don't have to break your back throwing pounders out here. Double dogs are real nice this time of year if you're going to throw on the main lake. Uh, that little bit of hang time, too, is nice. I, I find with, the, with those double tails, you know, just kind of letting it twitch and pause. Uh, you hear about the death paws all the time on southern reservoirs. When you're fishing glide bait, which is probably... For a big girl from now to March, I know they're going to eat a rattle and shad. But uh, in the back of the boat, I kind of switch it up, and I've become really in tune with hell puppies and hellhounds. Nothing fancy, really. You know, just uh, kind of that twitch pause. Soft tails are great, but this time of year, they're kind of nipping the tails off of shad. So I like that back hook. I don't really like something squirrely off the back. And, you know, if you're, if you're dialed in, Kevin Nash style, 10-inch jakes, if you're feeling twitchy. But... Uh, you don't really have to reinvent the wheel. You don't have to be switching up baits. And, uh, Jeff, this time of year, you know, if we got three guys in the boat, it's, it's rare to even switch baits once. <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll be a rattle trap in the front, probably a shallow invader in the middle, and a hell puppy coming off the backside of the boat. And uh, you're good from now until spawn. You know, one, one quick thing before we, 
before we start heading out is rattle traps. That's not something that's really talked about much in the north. In all your travels, do you ever have rattle trap bites in, say, you know, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, that kind of stuff? And I mean, you've fished all over. Do you find these rattle trap bites in other areas? I haven't. You know, it, to be honest, I'm so dialed into the to the bite down here. I don't get to travel much. Um, I fished Green Bay for opener um, probably over 10 years. I know they love those Vibrox Bucktails, but uh, I think next time I get up there for, for opener, if I'm up in the river, if I'm over in university or some of the other small creeks, I think I'm going to uh, really adapt to that, that shallow shelf with a rattling shad. But uh, to be honest, no, I have not. It's been all Green River, Cave Run, Melton. And uh, like Chris was saying, they don't even have a great rattle trap bite down there. But uh, especially with the with the murky water down here, I think it's key. But yes, I do think there's times, especially on those reservoir systems like Pete and Well and some of the muckier water during opener, that would definitely produce. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I it's it's nothing I've ever tried before. And you know, when I talk to these guys in the South, that's one thing they talk like every one of them talks about rattle traps, and it's something that I've always thought about trying to adapt into you know, Northern Wisconsin musky fishing, especially because my early season fishing, it doesn't seem like it's super amazing. We're usually right around spawn or just after, just before. And it doesn't, it hasn't seemed to be super amazing, especially lately. So maybe it's definitely something to throw into my arsenal. And if you're listening and you're, you know, and you're in those areas, maybe it's something to, you know, pick one up and give them a try. I mean, they're not real expensive. They're maybe 15 bucks, which is on the cheap end of musky baits. Yeah. And they hold up really well. You know, we've got a couple of 40 or 50 fish. A lot of them 10, 10 to 15 fish and hold up really well. You did say one magic word too, Jeff, is, is musky fishing. And I think when a lot of guys throw musky baits, uh, you know, they, they want that feeling. They want to be throwing the pounders. They want to be throwing supermodels. They want to be deep, bigger eights. Well, this time of year, we're really bass fishing techniques. I mean, we're throwing flukes and storm hot and tops. And, you know, there's there's some tricks up our sleeves this time of year too. Um, but, but definitely rattling shad with kind of a bass setup is, is going to be your go-to. You know, one quick thing, not to extend this too long, what what is your setup for throwing these rattling traps as far as the rod, the line poundage? Are you using a musky reel or are you using, I mean, would a Tranks 300 or 400 still work with uh, less poundage? Like what kind of test are you using? Yeah, so typically it's uh, eight, 8 foot to 9 foot, you know, 65 to 80 pound Portland Spectron Master Braid. I've uh, been really focusing on 65 pound uh, Stealth Leader, Spring Leader, 4 inch. Uh, tied directly to the leader with this uh, split ring right to the trap. And uh, you, minimal is key. 300 high speed with the power handle is outproduced over everything I've thrown, including the 400. Uh, that, that new Tranks 200, I think it's a little small. You're going to be flipping. I think it will be fine. Uh, they got one in the 8 range, 8.1. But that Tranks 300 high speed is is the go-to. Great. Say, so, hey, Chris, you know, the one thing that's pretty cool is like the – how hardcore some of these musky guys get earlier in the day. You had talked to me about this green Bay trip. Why don't you talk a little bit about that trip? Oh, well, my buddy, Jeremy Paulson, him and I, we used to get off work at four o'clock on a Friday, head up to the Bay or head up to Vermillion and, uh, get there, fish all night, you know, sleep for a couple hours in the boat up on a beach and then finish off fishing all day Saturday and then into Saturday night, maybe get a few more hours of sleep and then on, you know, fish all the way into Sunday and then come home and go back to work at seven o'clock in the morning. And, uh, those are the good old days when we were in our twenties and we could do that. I, I can't do that anymore, but I, I do owe it to Jeremy that 
the reason I bought a Lance pickup truck camper which, you know, I, I put the lance in the back of the truck and throw the boat behind it, and I'm mobile to go wherever I want. I bought that camper just so that Jeremy and I could sleep up at Gano so we could get a little bit more rest while we were out there trying to go hard all weekend. Yeah, I always like those stories. Just the stuff that muskie anglers will put themselves through just to prolong the shot at another fish or their biggest fish or whatever. You know, it's like once you once you get hooked, it's just, your life completely changes sometimes and you, uh, you kind of do some crazy stuff. For me, it's just getting away. You know, it's a, it's a moment of peace and a world of chaos and I get to get out and get away for five months, live in the camper. Don't see too many people and just fish. Yeah. I don't think you could say it any better. A moment of peace in a world of chaos. That's perfect. So guys, you know, I, I really want to thank you both for coming out and talking to us. I'm sure we'd love to have you back at some point. So let's start with Chris. Chris, for people that want to get in touch with you for uh, early season muskies down in Illinois, why don't you talk a little bit about that? Well, I'll be heading over to Lake Kincaid to guide with Scott. You can get my information at shawneeguides.com. I'll be there for the month of March, kind of depending on if I'll stay till April, depending on how many trips we book. But uh, I know we're always busy and we'll be, we'll be fishing a lot and get a lot of fishing in that. And Scott, if somebody wants to get in touch with you to book a trip for, you know, any, any time now, I mean, it sounds like the fishing is good January, February, and March. Why don't you talk a little bit about how they can get in touch with you? Yeah, the fishing has been incredible already. You know, um, unfortunately for some, I'm, I'm actually booked up for the spring already all the way through June. Uh, so I'm, I'm booking for 2022 already, um, which, which I truly appreciate the, the support from everyone. But, uh, yeah, it, it, it's going to be a great time. Shawnee Expeditions, you can reach us at shawneeguides.com. Uh, my cell phone number is 618-201-5820. You know, even if we're booked up, of course, we'd love to share information with you guys and get everyone on some fish. Excellent. I know I'm hoping to maybe try to get a trip down there with Matt Gunkel yet and sometime in February, early March, see if I can't get down there and, and check out Kincaid. I've had a few offers and I've always had offers and with no, no shows this season, I think I'm going to finally try to make it work to come down and visit Matt. But anyways, we just want to thank both of you guys for coming out, talking muskies with us. We really appreciate it. We'd love to have you back on sometime. I feel like we we kind of jumped around to a whole bunch of different topics, which is, you know, the cool thing about the podcast. But at the same time, it always leaves us with other stuff to talk about. So, again, can't thank you guys enough. Thanks a lot for coming out. And for our listeners, we appreciate you all listening to another episode. And we'll catch you all again next week. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having us.